exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. In America, we started with the pilgrims and the Puritans who pretended as if sex did not exist. And today, we pretend as if nothing else exists. In the words of theologian Alan Mosley, he said, We live in a sex-saturated, sex-obsessed society. Sex is an ever-present theme on television, the internet, in movies, music, and books. The advertising industry lives by the mantra, sex sells. And their belief in the market effects of sex multiplies the suggestive images we see every day. And I think Alan Mosley is absolutely right on the money. Because in our culture, for, for a lot of people, sex is their God. It's all they think about. It's what they obsess over. Their whole life, lives revolve around this idol. And then what makes this whole issue of sex and sexuality so confusing is that the church has often overreacted to the world so that instead of treating sex as a God, we tend to treat sex as gross. So we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We don't want to deal with it. And one of the byproducts of that thinking is that I know Christian couples who were married, who experienced shame and guilt in their marriage bed, when according to the Bible, they have done absolutely nothing wrong. But their whole life, they were hammered with this purity culture nonsense that preached that sex was this evil thing. So do everything you can to stay away from it. When in reality, the Bible actually says the opposite. See, according to the Bible, sex is not a God we should bow down to. And sex is not something gross and sinful that we should avoid. But biblically, sex is a gift from God meant to be enjoyed. So if we go back to the beginning, and I mean all the way to the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and all that he made was good. He made the day and the night, and it was good. He made all the creatures of the land and sea, and it was good. He made man, and it was good. But when among the animals there was not a suitable helper found fit for the man, for the first time we hear God say that something is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. So God puts the man asleep and he took part of the man's side and formed a woman. And like a father walking his bride down the aisle, God brought her to the man. And it's at this point in the story, Moses, the one who wrote Genesis, Moses adds his two cents and he writes, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. From the beginning, it was God's design that two people should enjoy one another in sinless sexual intimacy, which is why Bible, the Bible even calls marriage a one flesh union. One flesh because the rib that was taken from Adam rejoins the body, but this time in a much more enjoyable way. This relationship is not a really strong friendship. Marriage is a relationship with no boundaries, and it was given as a gift to mankind for our good. Because earlier it was not good for man to be alone, but after man and woman are joined together, God looks over his creation and he says it was very good. Of course, the tragedy of Genesis is that the honeymoon did not last because when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they realized they were naked and they became ashamed. 
They were exiled from the garden, and ever since then, sex and sexuality have been twisted and perverted, resulting again and again in nakedness and shame. And so now the question for us is, what does purity, what does pure sexual intimacy look like in a fallen world? And that's the question we'll be answering this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible, Leviticus 18 is on page 114. And as you're turning, let me tell you that my prayer for us this morning is that as we study the strange and ancient chapter on sexual purity, that we would discover God's design for human sexuality and that you would see sex not as a God to be worshipped or something gross and sinful that we should avoid, but that you would see sex as a gift from God, even if it may be abused. Because in Leviticus 18, we're going to find three truths about biblical sexuality. First, our sexual identity belongs to God. The first truth of biblical sexuality is that our sexuality belongs to God. We'll see that in verses 1 to 5. Second, in verses 6 through 23, we'll see that sex is God's garden design. And third, sexual immorality results in exile. And we'll find that in verses 24 through uh, 30, I think. Our sexual identity belongs to God. Sex is God's garden design. And sexual immorality results in exile. So let's pray. Because we're going to need it this morning. And then we'll dive in. Dear Almighty Creator, you are good. And all that you have created is good. So now that we are sinners living in this broken world, we desperately need your help to understand your design for marriage and family. So Lord, we ask that you would sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. And as I preach, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is delivered. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the blood and power of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look with me to verses 1 to 5 of Leviticus 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. We'll stop there. Remember where we are in the story of the Bible? At this point, we're maybe a month or two away from the exodus in Egypt. Like the ten plagues walking through the Red Sea, that just happened. The Israelites had spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt. And during that time, they were bound to pick up some bad habits. But not only that, they were heading into a land which was occupied by Canaanites. And this was not exactly a place that was a bastion of Judeo-Christian morality. And so it was going to be a temptation for the Israelites to model their worship, their life, their laws, and yes, even their sexual ethic after the nations they were coming out of or the nation they were heading into. But the Lord makes it very clear to the Israelites, you are not to be defined by the world around you, but you are to be defined by this fact. I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. Three times in five verses, we hear the Lord reminding them, I am the Lord. 
And so for the next three chapters, really, we're going to hear a list of rules that seem random to us. But here in these first five verses, we realize that this is not a list of random rules. These were rules that were meant to separate the people of Israel from the nations because the Lord was the Israelites' creator, because the Lord was the Israelites' savior from slavery in Egypt, because the Lord had atoned for the Israelites' sins through the sacrifices in this book, the Israelites were called to live a life marked by moral purity. And get that order right. The Israelites were not called to live holy lives so that the Lord would be their God. They were to live holy lives because the Lord was already their God. You hear the difference? The reason I'm pointing this out is because we're told the exact same thing as Christians. In Corinthians, we're told, you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. As Christians, we're not called to be holy so that we may be saved. We have been saved by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. We were bought at a price. Therefore, we are to be holy. Amen? Our identity as Christians comes from two places. Number one, our identity comes from the fact that we have the imagio Dei, the image of God. We were made in the image of God Almighty. And the fact that we were designed by God, for God, in the image of God, gives our lives inherent meaning. And even for every human being in the world, whether or not they are a Christian, they have innate value and purpose and worth because they are made in God's image. But now as Christians, number two, our identity comes from the fact that we are in Christ. We have been bought by him. We have been united with him through faith. We are members of his body. We have been adopted by his blood into his family. So everything we are as Christians is founded on those two foundational truths. God made us and Christ died for us. Amen. And that's why, listen, that's why my identity is not in the fact that I'm a married man or that I'm a father or that I'm an American or even that I'm a pastor. But my identity is that I am made in God's image and I'm adopted by God through the blood of Jesus. Amen. And so what all that means going forward for the Israelites is that their entire cultural, ethnic and personal identity was to be defined by the fact that the Lord was their God and they were his covenant people. And in chapter 18, we'll see that this was especially true for their sexual identity. What did that look like practically? Well, it all goes back to the garden because the second truth we find this morning is that sex is God's garden design. Look to verse six. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And we'll stop there. From verses six to 18, the Lord clarifies every kind of relationship that is off limits among close family members. We see the phrase uncover the nakedness used over and over again. This is a euphemist a euphemism for sex between a man and a woman, clear and simple. Now, I hope that we all agree. Incest, bad, right? There isn't a lot everyone can agree on when it comes to sexual taboos, but I think we are all still agreed incest is sinful and wicked. And if you're wondering why God spends 13 verses on incest, I think there's two reasons. First, if you read this list and you know your Bible well, You'll notice that a lot of the patriarchs, a lot of the heroes of the book of Genesis were involved in these inappropriate relationships. 
And this is something so important when you read Old Testament narrative, Old Testament stories, is that often something will be described and there's no clear condemnation in that passage. And it takes like 30 chapters later for Moses to clarify, actually, Abraham marrying his half-sister, that was not okay. Actually, Jacob taking two wives that were sisters, that was sinful. And it's so helpful for us to understand that because the Bible is not a book full of heroes. It's a book full of sinners all looking to one hero who is Christ. But secondly, I think it goes back to Genesis 2. It goes back to Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the beginning, it was God's design that two me's come together to form an us. That two individuals should part from their families and become a new family. And God was saying that if you uncover the nakedness of a close family member, you're perverting that design. Here the Lord was telling the Israelites that though the Egyptians and the Canaanites, they did these things, the Israelites were to be different. Because in the beginning, man was to leave his family to hold fast to a wife of a different family that they may form one new family. And now speaking of the garden, the next truth, um, or actually we'll look to, to verse 19. I'll say brace yourself for this one. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Now this verse shocking to us, strange to us. And this is the verse that people point to that if they want to throw out the rest of this chapter, um, they point to this verse. Because how can we as Christians argue that any of these laws apply to us today when it contains such a strange law like verse 19? And that is a great question. Because so often people are tempted to take the parts of the Bible they like and ignore the parts of the Bible they do not. And the problem with picking and choosing what parts of the Bible are true is that we end up with a God who thinks exactly the way we do. And let me say something. If your God never disagrees with you, then he's probably not real. He's probably just a figment of your imagination because if we're going to be cafeteria Christians looking at the buffet of the Bible and taking what we like and leaving behind what we don't, we're just going to end up worshiping a bigger version of ourselves. So let me propose something radical. When we come across a strange law like this, our tendency should not be to ignore it, but to obey it. Now, to be clear, I'm going to argue that verse 19 no longer applies to Christians today. But our first response to God's word should not be, that's the Old Testament. You know, I'm not going to worry about that. Jesus doesn't care about holiness. Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if we are going to be Christians, followers of Christ, then we have to have a really good reason if we're going to look at the law and say this no longer applies. We're going to have to have a solid, bona fide reason for how Jesus fulfills any law if we're going to say that's no longer for today. Uh, so let me, let me say this. One time I was on a mission trip with a guy named Ed Romine. Many of you know Ed because he preached here before. Uh, and But we were out on this mission trip and things were slow. And so... Uh, Ed um, was bored, and so he decided to talk with one of our fellow missionaries from the North American Mission Board, and uh, he started arguing with him about free will and predestination from the Bible, <laughs> which if you know Ed, that's just quintessential Ed Romine right there. <laughs> well, anyway, he's, they're going back and forth. It's a friendly conversation. Ed quotes something from the book of Romans, and, and the missionary he's arguing with says, oh, I don't disagree that, that Paul's saying that. I just disagree with Paul. 
And now the conversation got serious because it was no longer a friendly debate about free will or predestination, but it became a debate about whether or not the Bible was true. So at this point, I joined the conversation. We sit down and I ask him, why do you think Paul's writings aren't scripture? And, and this college kid who, who had long hair says that an old lady at his church told him he was going to hell because he had long hair. Because 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says that men should have short hair. And Ed and I were just appalled because that is a terrible way to interpret 1 Corinthians 11. So I was trying to tell him that. I'm like, that's not true at all. That's a terrible way to interpret that. And then he started arguing with us saying, no, this is what the passage says. And so I stopped it right there. I said, look, I don't think that's what it means. But if that is what it means, then the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with you. Just because you do not like something in the Bible does not mean it isn't true. And if this passage really means that men should have short hair, you need to find some clippers. The problem that young man had was not his hair, it was his heart. And as Christians, we should have a heart that is ready to trust and obey. But now looking back to this strange verse, number 19, I think the key to understanding verse 19 is in that word uncleanness. That even a few weeks ago, we talked about the purity laws of Leviticus and that it was even said then during a woman's time of the month, she and everything she touched would become ritually unclean. And just a refresher, being unclean was not sinful. It was only sin if you were unclean and came into the courtyard of the tabernacle. You could become unclean by having a kid, by going to a funeral, uh, by accidentally touching a, a dead animal in the wild. None of these things were sinful. They just made you ritually unclean and, and meant you could not come into God's presence in the tabernacle for a time. You could be washed. You could be restored. But when we go to the New Testament, Jesus is presented as the true and better sacrifice, the true and better temple. And so the, the purpose of the tabernacle and all the laws about ritual purity, we would say clearly have been fulfilled. But even though this verse is fulfilled, this is what I will say about this verse. I think there's still wisdom here in this verse. So let me say to you, husbands, as your wife is suffering through her period, be especially tender towards her. Be self-controlled and understanding towards your wife. If she's not feeling it, you're picking up what I'm laying down and strive to put her needs above your own. Amen, ladies? Amen. Verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. Thou shalt not commit adultery is one of the ten, so it's no surprise it gets repeated here. But again, we see that word unclean. And you may be wondering, Pastor, you just said all the cleanliness laws were fulfilled by Jesus. Does that mean adultery is cool now? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Why? Number one, being unclean was not a sin, but all sin did result in uncleanness. Let me say that again. Being unclean was not a sin, but all sin results in uncleanness. That's why the command to not commit adultery, adultery is clearly repeated in the New Testament. That's the easiest way to tell if a law in the Old Testament still applies to us, is if we see it repeated in the New Testament. And not only does Jesus repeat this command in the Sermon on the Mount, but he doubles down on it saying, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say if anyone looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. You may not have cheated, but have you looked with lust? If you had, before God, you were an adulterer at heart. Why was Jesus so intense about adultery? Because back in the garden, 
Marital, marital intimacy was designed to be enjoyed by a husband and wife only and no one else. To cheat on your spouse is not only breaking the covenant you made on your wedding day, but it is also perverting God's design for marriage and God's design included having eyes only for your spouse. Anything outside of that is sin. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. This one should be obvious. Are we all agreed? This isn't just an Old Testament command. Children are the product of that sacred union between a husband and wife. Adam and Eve were told, be fruitful and multiply. Children are divine image bearers, gifts from the Lord himself. And that's why the Lord says this practice was not just murder, but it was also an affront to his name. It profaned the name of God. Like so often we talk about when we take God's name in vain, it's using God's name as a cuss word. And yes, it does apply to that. But anytime we do something in the name of God, when it's not really what he has desired, that's profaning the name of the Lord. And in this act of pagan worship, sacrificing their own children, it was a despicable act, profaning the name of the Lord. And now we get to the infamous verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. What do we do with this verse? Because up until now, it seemed pretty cut and dry when it comes to what applies to today and what does not. But here in verse 22, we get one of the most hotly debated verses in all the Bible. For instance, there are many who argue that because verse 21 is talking about pagan worship, that verse 22 only condemns same-sex relationships in the context of pagan worship. The problem with that line of thinking is would child sacrifice be acceptable as long as it's not done in the context of pagan worship? Would adultery? There are others that argue that this isn't about two consenting adults, but that this is merely condemning pedophilia. But if you turn to Leviticus 20, 13, it says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So this is not about consent because both are guilty. I mean, the common reading of this is that these are two adult males. And that's even why when we turn to the New Testament, homosexuality is clearly taught to be a sin. In Romans 1, Paul describes same-sex relationships as unnatural and shameful. In 1 Timothy 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 6.9, repeatedly and consistently, homosexual activity is classified as sinful. There, of course... Many people who reject those verses because Jesus himself never said anything about same-sex relationship. And that is true. Jesus did not speak on that issue. There's a lot of things he did not speak upon, like incest, incest or child sacrifice. But Jesus actually did speak upon marriage. In fact, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, he answered them by quoting Genesis 2. Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus even adds his own commentary on that verse. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. When we read the Bible, it consistently and unapologetically teaches that marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. There's even a scholar named uh, Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson, a professor of New Testament at Emory University, who is also an avid supporter of gay rights. He, he wrote this, 
The task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says. The situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with the text? I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And, and listen to me today. My intent today is not to shame one kind of sinner over another. My goal is just to say that the Bible is clear on this issue. The only way to both profess to be a Christian, to believe the Bible and to affirm that homosexuality is not a sin is to reject the clear commands of Scripture like Dr. Johnson was proposing. And in our day, there are more and more churches and denominations that have openly denied that the Bible is the Word of God in order to affirm LGBT members of the community. Because listen, nothing that was said here this morning was said out of a spirit of hate. Everything I've said has been said because at this church we believe the Bible to be the perfect, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, and His Word is true. Amen? Amen. This is not an issue we want to harp on. If you've been here the last two years, I've maybe mentioned it once or twice, but this is probably the most in-depth I've ever talked about it. Um, but, but this is just what the Bible says. And now if you... Well, let, me, let me say this. If you're struggling with this issue, if you're wrestling with it, because this is an issue that's so close to so many people's hearts. I know so many of you now have, have members of your family and neighbors and friends who identify as LGBT. Uh, 20% of those who are in Generation Z would categorize themselves as LGBT. So it's just inevitable that this is coming out more and more. And let me just recommend a few resources for you first. This is a great book called Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. This is a man who struggled with same-sex attraction from a very young age and just writes biblically and very lovingly, how should you love someone who struggles with same-sex attraction? Um, Gay Girl, Good God is, is by uh, a lady named Jackie Hill Perry, who also, she was living in a relationship with a woman for years and then becomes a Christian and then had to deal with the fact of what the Bible said. And, and this is the story of her struggle. So if you're feeling that struggle, I think this is a, a wonderful resource. And then these books, uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller, the best book on marriage I've ever read. That's why we have several copies in our library. It doesn't address the issue of homosexuality, but it does just present a biblical image of what marriage should be. And I'll tell you, every husband, wife in this Room, you should read that book. It has a chapter on singleness and the beauty of singleness. I just highly recommend those resources to you. But now we look to verse 23. This section closes out with one last prohibition. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. And this just rounds out the idea that marriage was designed by God in the garden. In Genesis 2, after God had made all the animals, after he had made Adam, we read that a suitable helper was not found for Adam. So God puts Adam to sleep. He pulls a rib from Adam to make a suitable companion. Why a rib? I love what Matthew Henry said on, on that verse. He writes, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And when the woman 
was brought to Adam, we hear the first recorded human words in history. And what we hear is a love poem. For the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The foundation for all these verses is God's garden design. That God designed marriage to be a one flesh union for life between a man and a, of one family and a woman of another so that they could be naked and not ashamed. And eventually that they may be fruitful and multiply. But there's one more truth about biblical sexuality. Sexual, sexual immorality results in exile. The chapter began in verse 5 with the promise of blessing for the Israelites if they obeyed. But now in chapter, in chapter 18, as it ends in verses 24 through 30, it ends with this dire warning. The land Israel was entering was occupied by the Canaanites. But in verse 25, the Lord tells the Israelites that the land itself is vomiting them out because of their sins. And then if you look to verse 28, the Israelites are warned, don't assume the land won't vomit you out too if you follow in the Canaanites' footsteps. What's going on here? It all goes back to Genesis, if you can believe it. I, I haven't walked through a single chapter of Leviticus without seeing how every single part of this book is connected to those first three chapters in Genesis. And here, this is a picture of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. If you keep reading into Numbers and Deuteronomy, the promised land is pictured as a new garden of Eden. That it was meant to be a nation where God dwelled among man, just like he did with Adam and Eve. But just like when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden for their sin, so the Israelites too would be exiled if they practiced any of these detestable practices. Now I know... We are not a bunch of Israelites living in the promised land, living under the Mosaic covenant. So we do not have to fear being deported from Israel in the ways these Hebrews did. But there is a dire picture of God's judgment in these, in these verses because sin always leads to exile. That's even why in the New Testament, hell is depicted as outer darkness. That's why hell is described as eternal separation from God. That for those who live their lives wanting nothing to do with Jesus, they will in the end get exactly what they want. Distance from the God who is the source of life and light. Separation from the source of all blessing and happiness. And eternal exile from their creator and king. And listen to me, that is what we all deserve. Whether it's pornography or pride, whether it's lust or lying, whether it's homosexual sin or heterosexual sin. We are all sinners in need of a savior. But here is the good news that Jesus, the divine second person of the Godhead, he came to earth, was born of a virgin and lived the only true, pure life that has ever been lived. That Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet he was without sin. And when he rode into Jerusalem, instead of receiving him as a king, they condemned him as a criminal. Jesus was exiled. He was sentenced to carry his cross outside the city gates. And then he was nailed to that cross where he shed his blood for every kind of sin and every kind of sinner. That Christ died as the spotless Lamb of God to do what the sacrifices of Leviticus could never do. Not just to cover sin temporarily, but to take it away forever. 
And on a Friday, though he died as a thief, on a Sunday, on Sunday, he rose up victoriously as a king and then he ascended to heaven where now he serves as the one mediator between God and man so that today if you will humble yourself, if you will recognize your sin for what it is and you will turn from your sin and you will put your faith alone in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, then you will never have to fear hell or condemnation or exile ever again. But you will only know the love, the blessing, and the presence of Almighty God from now into eternity. This is the gospel. My prayer this morning was that we would discover God's design for human sexuality and that we would see sex as a gift from God. Because in Leviticus 18, we found three truths about biblical sexuality. Our sexual identity belongs to God. Sex is God's garden design. And sexual immorality results in exile. So let me ask you, how often are you, like the Israelites, tempted to live like the world around you. For those of you who insist on believing that the Bible is the word of God, you will be called narrow-minded and hateful and even bigoted. And it's going to be, it's going to be really tempting to adapt to the culture around you. In America, for the last several hundred years, Christians, we've had it pretty good. 30 years ago, you could not run for dog catcher unless you taught Sunday school at a church somewhere. Now you're going to get canceled for being associated with a church that preaches sermons like this one. So how can we be faithful to the word of God in this age? Because like Jesus, we are called to both genuinely love sinners and to call them to faith in Jesus. But like Jesus, we should not be surprised when we are hated for it. And lastly, if you're here and you're wondering and you just feel shame and you're just saying, I've messed up. I just feel too far beyond the grace of God. Let me say to you, there is hope. Because this morning I have four pastoral charges for you. I have four ways that we can discover God's design for human sexuality and see it as a gift. First pastoral charge, turn to Jesus to purify you. Turn to Jesus to purify you. One of my favorite verses in all the scripture, it's, it's so difficult, we can't read it all the time, but even in this context, I, I love it. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All of us, we all at one point would have landed somewhere on that list of sins. We would have all been among the unrighteousness and it's only by the grace of God that such were some of you. And today... If you need to be washed from the uncleanness of your sin, the good news is that by the name of Jesus, you can be washed, you can be made holy, you can be declared righteous. Simply repent and put your faith alone in the sacrifice of Christ. Second pastoral charge, embrace God's design for human sexuality. 
embrace God's design. Sex was God's idea. He designed it. When enjoyed within the context of marriage, it can be a God-glorifying endeavor. And when God gives us guardrails to enjoy that gift, he knows what he's doing. And I'd encourage you, if you're living in sexual sin, if you're addicted to pornography, if you're living with someone you're not married to, whatever your sin may be, turn from that sin today. When the woman was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus, Jesus said, let him who is without sin throw the first stone and one by one her accusers left her. And then Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And if you've now received the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, then I also say to you, go and sin no more. Third pastoral charge. Beware of looking down on those who sin differently than you. Beware of looking down on those who sin differently than you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't remove the speck in your own eye, or don't, respect the, don't remove the speck in your neighbor's eye before you remove the plank in your own eye. It's so easy for us to look down on our gay neighbor while we conveniently forget our own sexual shortcomings. And it is far too common in the church where heterosexual sin is swept under the rug while homosexual sin is loudly and unequivocally condemned. But in this church, this cannot be our mindset. Sin is sin, and we must be aware of that temptation of looking down upon those who sin differently. Final pastoral charge. Find your identity in Christ. Find your identity in Christ. In America, we are constantly told that your identity is not found in your creator, but in your sexual identity. We're constantly told the most important thing in this life is love. We're told you are not complete until you find your soulmate. You cannot find real happiness and fulfillment in this life until you find your other half. And that's all that matters. So why would you ever stop someone from embracing the one they love? And I even say, even within the church, we often have this misconception that you can only be a real Christian if you're married. And that is simply not true. Pastor and theologian John Piper once said, never to have married is not a tragedy. Otherwise, Jesus' life is a tragedy. Tragedy is craving the perfect marriage so much that we make a God out of being married. Marriage does not and should not meet all of our needs. It should not be an idol. It should not and cannot take the place of Jesus himself. Marriage is but for a moment. Jesus is for eternity. How we live in our marriages and our singleness will show if Jesus is our supreme treasure. Let me tell you, your desires do not define you. We are all so much more than our sexuality. And the call to follow Christ is not a call to be straight and married and sexually fulfilled. To follow Christ means to leave behind all worldly pleasure so that you can be eternally satisfied in Christ. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's why Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. And all the people said, let's pray. Dear Lord, give us the wisdom to accept the parts of your word that are hard to swallow. Give us the grace to joyfully follow your commands and grant us the endurance to serve you all of our days. It's through the blood of Jesus 
and in the power of his name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.